Well, I've not been on a first date since I was 17. (laughs) And so this is more abstract for me, but some of you maybe can relate to this more immediately than I can. But uh, my thought is when you go on dates, there's like a a certain nicety you kind of have to go through. And you talk about like who wore it best at the Oscars and, you know, your favorite restaurant, you know, these sorts of things. But I imagine at least there are ways in which some people on their first date just go from zero to 12, like immediately. And they're the one who's like, who hurt you the deepest? And, you know, like what is your greatest fear in life? And you've just met them off of an app five minutes ago. Um, I'm that guy today because for many of of you, we're kind of feeling this thing out. We're in a new space, only been here a few weeks, and you may have an idea from what Jesus just said of where we're headed for the next few minutes. Uh, and so I, I am going to be that guy. And so this is like a, a warning on the front end for all of you, especially for parents, uh, in sincerity. Uh, I, I don't say that to sensationalize or get your expectations too high of where this is headed, but if the things we just read about have not been things you've discussed or want to discuss in your home, Um, you've been warned. So before we have a really heavy conversation, how about I tell you a simple story as a way into that? Um, We'll start out there at least. I recently went to a birthday party, a really big birthday party. House was full of people. And so you find yourself, you've been here, you find yourself in conversation with people that you on the surface have very little in common with right? Very little in common with. And so I found myself cornered in the kitchen talking to a guy who works as a personal trainer. Um, you laugh. <laughs> we have very little in common. It's true. Uh, and so we're making small talk and he says to me, he, he looks me in the eyes and he says, so do you lift? <laughs> I've spent years perfecting my middle-aged dad bod. And so uh, we both knew the answer to his question. And so I diverted it quickly and, and had to find something else to talk about other than my lack of lifting. And so I, because I, I have wondered this. And so I asked him, I said, do you find it really painful and difficult as a trainer wandering through a gym to see people trying to exercise and not having a clue what they're doing. And he said, oh, absolutely. It's the absolute worst because he said, I see people every day in these gyms. It's ironic. We're next door to an LA fitness. Like people are doing it right now as we speak, uh, using these machines that have instructions and tell them what to do. But he says, they don't actually have a clue how to exercise and they don't know how to use them. And so they end up getting hurt because they don't realize if they move this arm this way, it affects something in their back or their legs. And so, he said, part of my job is to help them see the, the purpose for which all these exercises exist and the way in which they, if you do one thing, it's connected to the whole and that actually this all has a, a greater intention behind it. And that's kind of his job as a trainer. And I'm sitting there with my queso and chips and, you know, nodding in great agreement. Um, but I've chewed on that for the last week or so because so many people go to the gym And yet so many people go to the gym and don't actually get fit. They're not actually healthy. And I think of that as I think of Jesus's words. We're now three weeks into talking about the law and what the purpose of the law is and how people relate to the law. And I I have that in mind because I think Jesus in some ways says, here's these instructions, this way to live and ways to do things. And yet you don't actually grow. You do all these things and yet you're not actually getting stronger. And so Jesus, in part, what he's trying to do in the Sermon on the Mount is not impose a new law as much as he's trying to say, here's how all of these various commands from God 
are good, but are actually meant to change something complete and holistic inside of you. Not just the things you do, not just uh, following the letter of the law, but actually the whole of your being. Talked about that last week. Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And I think what we see today then really is picking right back on those themes. He takes the law itself. He pulls out the Ten Commandments metaphorically and he starts working through them. And he says, here's how you think these instructions, these commands will make you strong, will make you healthy. And he says, you've missed the point entirely if you think just doing what it says on the machine is actually how you become healthy. And so keep that in mind as we now kind of dive into the deep end, dive into all of the examples that he gives. Um, these are hard words to hear. I mean, they really are hard words to hear. It's one of the reasons I'm reminded again and again of the gift of the lectionary. The lectionary is the assigned readings we read as a church, both at Trinity, but also with Christians literally around the world. And one of the things it does is it, it forces us to wrestle with texts like this, because it would be very easy uh, for us to say, we're going to do four weeks on a better marriage, three weeks on healthy spiritual habits. And those are fine. If we were making series after series, we would likely skip everything Jesus just said, because that doesn't fit well into a heartwarming series. These are hard words to sit with. And yet, if we only do what's easy, if we only kind of skim the surface, our faith will be surface level as well. And we'll never actually tend, ironically, never actually tend to the parts of our hearts and our lives that Jesus actually wants us to care about. Because that's what he's getting at. It's not just what you do, but it's the whole of your being, even down to the very core desires of your heart. And if you ignore those, you will not grow. You'll only have an appearance, a superficial sense of growth, but you won't actually grow. And so what I want, I want us to see is the way in which he is inviting us to move from just a transactional faith where I do this set of things and God does these things in return to what is truly transformational, the transformation of our entire lives. And so it may help to follow along if you have a Bible in Matthew 5. Help us to see what Jesus is saying. I think it's helpful in the one sense just because it... It helps you to see I'm not going off the script. I'm not going off the text. There, I, I, I commit to you to not say more than Jesus says, but I'm going to say some hard things that I think are actually what he's saying. And so it helps us to see this is part of what Jesus is inviting us to wrestle with, as hard as it is. We heard it throughout our songs. We heard it even through our readings. I love that psalm, Psalm 119, which is this reminder of this love for the commands of God. It doesn't do away with the law. It says the commands of God are to be delighted in, happy are are those who walk in the law of the Lord. And then the second verse though says, happy are those who keep his decrees, who seek him with their whole heart. It was great. We did that verse twice. We love it so much. And so it's, it's like, there's something to that. Uh, it was an accident. We didn't really do that, but it, it maybe, maybe there was something to that. Um, because it, I love that verse because it speaks to both of these. It says, happy are those who keep his decrees. The law matters. The commands of God matter. But the point is those who seek him with their whole heart. And so in some way, the the desires of your inner being and the commands of God are meant to go together. And Jesus sees it this way. Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, but I say to you, that's a statement of authority. That's only a statement someone can make who's the son of God, who says, here's what the law actually means. Here's what it means to follow God. And so Jesus just dives right in. And so we're going to dive right in. I, I... um, ask for grace and patience. If anything I say is confusing or hard to hear, uh, come talk to me and let's walk through this together. 
So let's start with murder. <laughs> like I said, come talk to me. Murder and anger. Murder and anger. Here's, this is important to say really on all of these. This, here's what Jesus is not saying. He's not primarily talking about a momentary outburst of anger where your kids do something that frustrates you and you're tired and you're weary and so you kind of snap. That is not primarily what he's getting at because I want to believe and choose to believe for my own life and yours in those moments, those outbursts, whatever brings them up is not coming from a deep-seated, hardened sense of anger. Like I am not hardened and opposed fundamentally to my children, thank God. And so what comes out is not coming from that place. It's, it's, it's still not great and we need to tend to it. But I think throughout all of these, Jesus is speaking to this, this fundamental hardening of our spirits and the core of our being, this hardened resentment and deep anger that we have, like a deep-seated grudge that is so hard to take out. It's like it's rooted into your very being. One person put it this way. They said, what is envisioned here is a contempt that would write the other person off entirely. What Christ condemns here is the rage that implicitly denies the personhood and dignity of the other person. I love that last bit because ultimately what Jesus is wanting for us is to retain dignity for other people. That the way in which we act in whatever we may be doing dignifies someone else. It sees that they are human and worthy of love and should be lifted up by the way I act towards them. And so a hardened, unshakable anger in every way cuts against that and works against it. And so against it. And so Jesus is saying, tend to that part of your soul. The part of your soul that is so calloused and closed off, you may not even be aware of it yourself because it can dehumanize you. You're not just dehumanizing others, but letting these things fester and live within us, it actually ultimately dehumanizes who we are. And that's the point Jesus is saying. You don't have to murder someone to be sick in your soul. You don't have to murder someone to need the healing touch of God. Because if we have hardened anger in our hearts towards someone, it, it makes us less human. It makes us less than what God wants us to be. So much so that it, it can impair our very communion with God, which is the point of all of this, to know God, to see God. And so if we are hardened in our hearts, it actually affects not just our relationships with one another, but how we relate to God. Paul talks a lot about this. Um, Paul uh, frequently brings up anger and desires of the flesh, he calls them. And what's interesting is Paul is helpful for pointing out the fact that anger is not neutral. It's not like you got angry against someone 10 years ago and that has just stayed the way it is. It's like a cancer. And so it grows. And if you don't tend to it, it's not going to stay how it was. It will only grow and deepen and solidify more and more in your life and in who you are. And Paul says, if you don't tend to it, his phrase is, you're making room for the devil. Paul doesn't, doesn't mince words. He says, you're making room for evil in your life if you don't tend to these deeper parts, hopefully uh, intentionally and regularly in your life. And so scripture tells us, do not let the sun go down on your anger, which is a lovely way to say, don't think you can ignore your anger and think it won't have consequences, that you can just push it aside and, and brush it off and that you can go on living the life that God wants you to live or that you want to live. It just won't happen. And so we have to tend to it. I wish we could snap our fingers and we all get a prayer after communion and you leave here and you never are angry again. All of that hardened anger is gone. And, and it doesn't typically work that way. 
In some ways, it takes decades for us to build up and harden our souls the way that we sometimes do. And in a similar way, it takes time. It takes a tending to week in and week out to the life of God, which is why I think Jesus talks about worship. It's interesting. He talks about this. He says, first be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. And so for him, this idea of reconciliation, the healing of, of wounds and of anger is tied to worship tied to, in some way, our ability to relate to God. It's interesting why we have the passing of the peace every week. It's very closely linked to Jesus' words. We don't pass the peace because I preached too long and you need to stretch and like give everyone a high five. That's not what we're doing. Passing the peace is just as important in the drama of our liturgy as everything else we're doing because it's, it's pointing us to the fact that we need to be reconciled to one another. And that throughout the week, I can live in such a way where I distance myself from those I'm meant to love. And so even though I may not have an immediate conflict with Chris, when I pass the peace with Chris, and symbolically, I'm saying I'm at peace not only with Chris, but with everyone in this room. I'm saying I'm choosing to live a way of life that is defined by peace. And if I know there is anger and a hardened bitterness in my heart towards someone that the Lord loves and calls a son or a daughter, I do not have an option but to tend to that and to do everything in my power as much as it is possible before God to say, I want to live in peace and be free from that anger. So why we confess as well every week, we confess and ask forgiveness absolution is the traditional word every week. It's something we do. I know it feels routine. It's because our, our brokenness is routine, if that makes sense. We sin every week. And so every week we need to be reminded of the mercy of God, that our brokenness is what we bring to him and we receive freedom as a result. The, the power of sin, the chains of sin are broken. Uh, I'm friends with a Catholic priest here in town and he invited me months back to go and visit his church and tour it and kind of see it a really, really beautiful space. And in their tradition, one of the things they do frequently is offer what they call sacramental confession, where you actually go and confess your sins to a priest. And uh, Anglicans have this practice and others do as well, but not as frequently as um, Catholics do. It's a big part of their tradition. And so built into their building is a permanent confessional where you sit with the priest and confess your sins to God and they um, assure you of God's forgiveness. Uh, that's not the point. The point is, architecturally, it really stood out to me. It's, it's these big double doors that open from the inside and on their space it has this coiled brass snake that is the handles for both sides of the door so that when you open the door the snake is is broken in two and i thought it's the most beautiful intentional use of sacred space that i've seen in a long time because what they're saying is when we confess our sins the power of evil is broken it's snapped in two and so that's for whether you go to confession formally or not, uh, the power of freedom from sin should be for every single one of us. And to take that seriously, we confess because we want to be free. Jesus wants us to be free. This whole passage is about freedom, not about guilt, not about a new set of laws, but freedom so you can flourish as a human being. It's important for us to hear when we now shift gears and talk about adultery and lust and divorce. In a similar way, we have to remember Jesus wants us to be free and he wants us to flourish. Like anger, I don't think he's here talking about a passing temptation or acknowledging the attractiveness between the sexes. 
that is not in and of itself sinful. Um, this passage for a lot of youth group kids has caused a lot of confusion over the years. Because <laughs> you say, well, how on earth do I even live? <laughs> what Jesus is saying is this deep hardened sickness that rots away in your being. Someone else called it the sustained and obsessive watching of another person, an act of a man or woman who cannot tear themselves away from the object of their desire. I've been a pastor for over a decade now, which means I've sat with a whole lot of people. One of the incredible joys of this job is to sit with people in very intimate space in the joys and the sorrows of their life and to ask the Lord into that space. And I can tell you without any hesitation, one of the greatest sources of shame and anger and guilt and confusion and hardening of our hearts is broken sexual desire. Without a doubt, top of the list. And we see it again and again, specifically, and I I think it's important to speak to this uh, because it's what I see week in and week out is the incredibly catastrophic, destructive impact of pornography in every way. And we would be naive to think in a room this big that that does not immediately impact many of us in, in this room in one way or another. And one of the, there's a lot we could say about that. One of the hardest things for me in that area is the way in which even in the Christian community, it has come to just be an accepted norm. Not just the struggle, but even failure and giving into the struggle. It's like as normal as paying your taxes. It's like, it's just a thing that happens. I was speaking to someone weeks ago and they called it struggling with normal guy stuff. That was their phrase, just normal guy stuff. Um, we need to be reminded and wake up before God Almighty that the objectification of another person's body for our personal gratification is not normal. Full stop. There's nothing normal about it. And in no way does Jesus want that to be a part of his church. To say that that's just a normal thing we live with day in and day out and never expect to be free from. That is not the Christian life. He boldly asks us to walk in purity and in freedom. And he says, if you have to, pluck your eye out and cut your hand off to do so. Jesus knows it's hard. People lusted 2,000 years ago. It's a universal human condition. Jesus knew this was hard to do. They didn't have iPhones. It's much easier now than it was then, but he knows the condition of the human heart. And so he says, this is going to cost you. It might cost you your iPhone. And we all love TikTok, but it might cost you your iPhone. Go get a flip phone because he wants you to be free. And he says, do something dramatic just because his language is not literal. Do not miss the intensity with which he says his words. Jesus says, you have to be decisive, even radical in eliminating sin from your life. And it may hurt. Cutting your hand off or plucking your eye out would hurt like heck. Getting freedom in this area could hurt many of us incredibly. But I promise you it won't hurt more than the people it hurts in your life. It won't. The Lord wants us to be free. If you feel trapped and hopeless in that, come talk to me. There's ways to find freedom. Ministries, detox programs, things that you can do to actually submit this part of your life and say, I've not fought against it or I've not fought to the death. I still have my hand, still have my eye. He wants us to be free. One of the greatest tragedies, I think a work of pure evil 
is because of this, because of the failure and the sense of shame we feel in this area, we miss the gift that our desires are meant to be from God. That sexual desire is not broken. It is broken, but it's not wrong. It is a gift from God. And yet we don't know what to do with it. And so we, we assume then, especially in the church, I grew up in youth group, like I know this, we assume sexual desire is inherently sinful. And so the only option is to kill it, to like cut it out and be free from it. There's a, a teacher who talks about this, writes books on this called Christopher West. Uh, he, he says we fall into two categories in this. If God's best is a feast where all of our desires point to union with him and life of, of intimate communion with God, when we struggle to, to strive for that ideal, he says we fall into two groups. One is he calls it a starvation diet. I like his lingo especially. It's helpful. Uh, a starvation diet, which is a.k.a. youth group, um, where the youth pastor says, like, bro, marriage is amazing. Sex is awesome. But you can't have it for 20 years, so, like, just kill it. Like, like kill everything inside you. Like, just die a slow death. Um, and, like, we call that youth group. And, and we go, and we eat pizza and talk about, like, not looking at porn. Like, that was my adolescence. Um, and so we starve it out. And then when we, quote, unquote, go into marriage, we don't have a clue what we're doing. We don't know what to do with the desire because we've spent our whole lives killing it, right? And so he says, on the other hand, what we then do is if it's starvation on the one hand, we know that doesn't actually work. A human being has to eat. And so you can't ultimately starve yourself or you will die. And so instead, he says, we have a fast food diet. We know the feast is, is too unobtainable, too, too much of an ideal. And so I'll just go to Wendy's and I'll eat chicken nuggets because it, it tastes good, it goes down quick, makes, takes away the hunger for a little bit, um, and I think increasingly pornography is like chicken nuggets. Uh, we know it's not the real thing. Like no one who's addicted to this thinks this is the real thing. Like this is what God made this desire for. But we don't know how to actually strive for the feast. And so we, we accept fake substitutes. Uh, C.S. Lewis talks about this. We're made for a holiday at the sea. And instead we, we make mud pies in the, in the slums. Because we don't actually know the, the purpose of our desires. Our desires are meant to, to point us to God and actually unite us to him. All of these desires, they're incredibly powerful. Dallas Willard says, intimacy is a spiritual hunger of the human soul and we cannot escape it. If you try and escape a desire this powerful, You'll never do it. You will long for intimacy your whole life. And I think that quote's really helpful because it reminds us that marriage is not the feast either. Marriage is not the feast either. And if that's what we're told, then we'll get all the way there. And then that's why Jesus in the very next breath has to talk about divorce. Because we don't actually know how to live as married people. Because we think this is an end in and of itself. When marriage is meant to point beyond itself, just like your singleness is meant to point beyond you and towards God. And towards the potential for union with God. That's why we're made. And the longings and desires we have in marriage, as great as those can be, still are not ends in and of themselves. And if we think they are, we'll We'll end up just as frustrated in our relationships and in our married life as we will be in our singleness. We have to see all of our desires are meant to be pointed out of our own fulfillment and towards God, towards fulfillment in him. N.T. Wright, talking about divorce, ties these together. He says, divorce normally happens when lust and lies have been allowed to grow up like weeds and choke the fragile and beautiful plant of marriage. And I think one of the lies we're told is that marriage is ultimate. Marriage is the ultimate destination and end for your desires. And it's just not true. 
It's God. And marriage is meant to point you like a window, like an icon to that ultimate union. And in your singleness, that longing, there's an immediacy of that longing that can be found in God. So our destination is the same wherever you find yourself. I think another lie we're told is that God God wants us to be happy. Like happiness is our ultimate aim. And therefore, if I'm not happy in my relationships, surely God wouldn't want me to stick around because he wants me to be happy. Well, Jesus never says that. He never says unhappiness or a a lack of a a sexual spark is reason for divorce. Not once does he say it. Uh, I think he is wanting us to see marriage as a training ground for holiness, even in bad times, even when it's hard, because it forces us to learn to look out of ourselves and towards another. Out of ourselves and towards another. Like pornography, like anger, Divorce is one of those that has touched virtually everyone in this room, either immediately or secondhand. And so I don't say hard words to make you feel shame. There's a difference in shame and guilt. Shame is, is feeling bad about who you are. Guilt is, is feeling the weight of, of brokenness and longing for change. Guilt can be a gift. Um, shame is not. The Lord never shames us. But I think Jesus does want us to to feel the weight of our brokenness so we can find hope. He doesn't leave us in our brokenness. But he invites us out of it into something beautiful, something free and good. May feel anticlimactic, but just since we've hit all the others, just to say he talks about oaths at the end. In Jesus' day, swearing oaths was a really common practice. You would formally make all these oaths using a bunch of different things you would swear to. You would swear by the temple. You could swear by God himself, the gold in the temple. You could swear by heaven. You could swear by earth. And there are all these formal ways you could keep an oath and break an oath. And Jesus' point is saying it's not about the legality of the oath that you made and whether or not you can get off the hook for it. Again, it matters who you are in the core of your being. And so let your yes be yes and your no be no. Let the interior life and the exterior life that you live have a very real integrated harmony. And I think they're all connected. Let your yes be yes and your no be no in your relationships, in the way in which you relate to others, in the the, the anger, the temptation towards anger that you have. All of these things um, tend, tempt us and they shape us in more ways than we can ever imagine. So, I've said enough for today. Paul in Philippians 3 said that he was blameless before the law. We'll close with this. He said he was blameless before the law, meaning he had done everything the instructions told him to do. Every commandment he was given, he did it by the book. And yet he still said uh, he missed the point of the whole thing. He missed that this pointed actually to union with God. And it wasn't until he's on the Damascus Road and encounters the living God that all of his law keeping makes sense. And so like the psalm, we don't do away with the law, but we say all of this actually is meant to lead us to union with God. Actually, all of this is meant to say, this moves me deeper and closer to an encounter with God. Not just in my head, but in the whole of my being. Not just in what I do, but in what I feel and what I long for and what I desire. Jesus, just a few weeks ago, a few verses back said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Jesus doesn't want you to be pure just so you can tick off that you you do the right things. He wants you to see God. That's what Christian life is about. And if it's anything less, we're accepting pitiful substitutes for faith. We must behold God and realize all the things in our life and what we do and what we think and what we long for, the way in which they set us on a different course. And it won't lead us where we want it to lead us. So God, have mercy on us.
Oh, Jesus, would you open our hearts to where we are calloused and blind to hardened, deeply set sin in our hearts, in our minds, in the way we relate to one another. Would you have mercy on us? Forgive us of our sins. Give us a vision of your kingdom, of what it means to behold your face. And that every longing, every desire that we have is not an end in and of itself unless it points us to you, our ultimate goal, our ultimate aim. We long to know you and find our life in you. So help us to tend to the dark parts of our heart and our life. Help us to be honest in the conversations we have this week. We invite your Holy Spirit, painful as it may be, we invite your Holy Spirit to reveal to us places of our blindness. Would you give us the grace, as you do, to tend to those and offer them to you and ask you to heal us and restore us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you're able, would you please stand? Thank you so much for listening to today's sermon. My name is Tripp Prince, and I'm the parish pastor here at Trinity on the north side. At Trinity, our mission is to be a people growing into Christ's likeness. You can learn more about Trinity and get plugged into the life of the church by visiting us online at atltrinity.org. God bless you and have a great week.